Good morning, church family. Today I want to talk about peace, which is something that some of you may feel like you have right now, and some of you feel like you are far from it. I think it's something that we want for the world, and sometimes it's hard to see it in the world. So I hope that today, and something I say, will help encourage you to embrace peace in your own life and to work for it in the world. And sometimes it's really hard to work for something that we don't have inside of us. Sometimes it's hard for us to try to give something that we are not able to receive. Uh, let me just uh, take a moment. I, I want to welcome all the people in this room, longtime members, maybe first-time guests, all of you joining us online today. Thank you for participating in this worship service. I've seen God at work in this church, uh, especially over the last week. I'm in a series right now called Choreology. We're just talking about what are some biblical principles that can root us that can help us stay rooted in God through all the culture wars and through a presidential election season and an election season next year that can sometimes take some of our attention away. It can be distracting. And one thing I love about being the preacher in this church is that I don't feel like I just stand up on a stage and preach at you, but that we get to learn together. I don't feel like I'm the one that's been appointed by God to stand up to instruct and you listen and you learn, but that we are instructed by God together. And so, many, so much of what I'm preaching about in this series, it is things I have seen lived out and modeled in the lives of people in this church for years. I learn from you, you teach me, and I'm grateful that kind of sometimes, I, I guess I just get to be the mouthpiece for it. I've seen a camp this past week. I was able to go out a couple of times. I was not there the whole week, but it was so wonderful seeing God work in the lives of people, seeing relational connection. And it means a lot to me to have as many adults in this church who take weeks of vacation to go to church camp. Like it just means so much of how you were investing in other people. And, and I love it. Yesterday, I was a part of grocery giveaway, which I've only done a few times, but I got a witness uh, Jan and Lynn and Kevin Wells and Charlotte and Doyle and Terry and Lacey and, and I may be missing some people I got to witness the, them speak to over 120 vehicles and some of them have more than one person in there and I got to see Jeff Cousins and Daryl Montgomery pray with over 120 people yesterday which none of those do it for show they don't do it for pictures or videos it's just, it's just their love for God is just being lived out and, and I love it it's around this time every year I'm reminded of a story of my life, and I've probably told this story at least 10 times in my 15 years of preaching here. And for the students in the room, I want you to especially listen up, because I, I think about this when I think of you. It was around this week in my life, 26 years ago, after my sophomore year of high school, it's hard to believe it's been that long, but uh, one of the most pivotal moments in my life happened when church camp that year for me dealt with some of the things I was struggling in, with in my own life. I was far from God. It was probably the furthest from God I'd ever been. I was still going to church, going to youth group activities, but God sent two men in my life that year who spoke into my life. They spoke words of conviction and words of grace. And I came home from church camp, and it was about three weeks later, I found myself in somewhat of a depression. Uh, not really a depression, but just wrestling with the forgiveness of God and the grace of God. Is, is, it good, is it as good as people make it out to be? Like, can God really forgive me for some of the things I've done in my life? My sister came home from college to the day Jenny died. We had a close relationship. She came in my room, began asking me questions about my prayer life, my relationship with God, and about sin in my life. And then she convinced me that night to sit down and to confess a few things to mom and dad, which at first I wasn't a big fan of because 16-year-olds don't confess sins to mommy and daddy, but she convinced me to do it. She went first. And my parents were a basket case before it even got to me. And then I shared a few things. And as I shared a few things, I will never forget it that my mother stood up, 
and ran out of the room. And I thought she left the room because she was so disappointed that she just could not be in the room with us anymore. And she came back in the room with her big Bible. And she had a big Bible, a study Bible. And she had it open to the Psalms. And the Psalms had become my mother's prayer language. And she came and she stood over us. And she just began reading and reciting Psalms. I'll never forget it. Psalm 63, 84, 103, 51. She would just flip and read a few words, read a few sentences as a prayer. And it was the first time in my life I felt like I could open up my hands and receive the grace of God for what it is. And in that moment, I did not know that preaching was going to be what I did. I just knew if there's someone who would die for me, whose grace is as good as that, I want to live for him for the rest of my life no matter what I do. And I don't think I would be who I am today if my mother had not been fully present before God in that moment to pastor two of her three kids. So my word to students today is last week at camp is not all God wanted to teach you about what he taught you last week at camp. It may be this week, it may be three weeks from now, it may be three months from now. Like, God's not finished teaching and instructing, so let God continue to do what God does and how he's teaching you about Jesus making his home in your life and what it means to live at home with Christ. Uh, with that said, all right, we're, we're talking about peace this morning. We're going to be bouncing around to a few different places. If you want to open your Bibles in Matthew chapter 5, we'll get there, but it'll be a few minutes before we get there. I want to talk just for a moment about Jesus and Caesar. And when a Caesar would become a Caesar, the coronation process of the crowning moment of them being, uh, being crowned like the emperor of Rome, there were eight steps that would happen. Now, there are a few historians who have pieced this all together, and I'm just going to give you eight steps, and, and they're all going to come up one by one. So if you want to take a picture of them, wait until all eight are up there and you can get all eight. But here's how it would go. When, somebody was, when the candidate was becoming Caesar of the Roman Empire, the first thing that would happen is they would come before a crowd of 6,000 people. It's called the Praetorium. These were 6,000 soldiers, and that candidate would stand in the middle of all of them. And if you're in the middle of 6,000 people, I want you to think about what it felt like in that moment, the responsibility, the honor, maybe the power that you would feel in that moment, being surrounded by 6,000, and you are in the center of them all. And then they would put a purple robe on you and they would take an olive leaf wreath and place it on your head as a crown. So there was this, this moment of being clothed and crowned as royalty. And then the third thing that was hap would happen is the crowd begins yelling like they were acclaiming that you are Caesar. So you would hear the chants that would come over them as if they are voicing their approval over this moment. And then there would be a procession that would begin and it was a procession through the streets of Rome. And his procession through the streets of Rome would include soldiers who were walking in front and soldiers who were walking in the back and a bull that would be right behind the, the candidate who was about to become Caesar. And that bull had a slave next to the bull and the slave carried an axe because at the appointed time, at the right time, the slave was supposed to slaughter the bull as a sacrifice. And then some stories talk about how they may be offering up fragrances in the front and the back. So this was a procession, like the celebratory moment. This procession, number five, will go all the way up a hill to where like all of Rome could see what is happening in this moment. When they got up the hill, the slave who had been walking next to the bull would offer up uh, wine mixed with myrrh. And in that moment, the emperor, the Caesar, the candidate about to become Caesar, would take the wine mixed with myrrh, would hold it, and would, would not drink it, would give it back to the slave, and would either be poured out on the ground or it would be pulled, poured on the bull. 
The next thing that would happen is uh, the Caesar would take the second and third in command and they would walk up, they would ascend just a little higher to a temple where they would sit on a throne. And then the last thing is all the people of Rome who were there in this moment, they would yell and they would acclaim Caesar as Lord. Caesar as Caesar. Now, you may, you may already see where this is going just a little bit. Because here, here's what it would look like for Caesar to become king. And what historians have done is they have shown this, and what Christian historians have done is they're like, now think about what it was like when Jesus became king through his death on a cross. That Jesus also, there was a crowd. The night he was arrested, a crowd of a, probably would have been around 150 to 200 soldiers, and Jesus was right there in the middle of them. They placed a purple robe on Jesus, but they did not place an olive leaf wreath on Jesus. They placed a crown of thorns on Jesus. And then they began to acclaim him as Lord, though it was sarcasm. They were mocking him, shouting at him like he was the Savior and he was the King. And then there was a procession not through the streets of Rome, but a procession through the streets of Jerusalem. And this is a procession in which soldiers were in front of him, and Jesus was carrying a cross, but there was no bull behind him to be sacrificed because Jesus would become the sacrifice. They would go to one of the highest hills in Jerusalem, Golgotha, where Jesus was lifted up. Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh, and Jesus said no. In the moment he could have used it the most, he said no. Jesus was crucified, not with the second and third in command next to him, but with two thieves next to him, according to the Gospel of Luke. And we are told that at the cross, there were crowds of people who were mocking him. And then there was a voice of a Roman centurion who spoke up at Jesus' death and said, that is the Son of God. So if you look at those eight right there, now, here's the deal. Some of you, you hear me kind of play that out, and you're like, I don't know. I mean, you're a little skeptical of that. I mean, you know, we can make history say whatever we want it to say. Some of you are like, okay, I mean, look, the reality is, like, Caesars became king. They became emperor. Jesus became king. So there was a process for both of them, their kingship, of them becoming king. Some of you may look at that and think, you know, did God run out of creativity? So now he had to take how the Caesar became emperor. And now, you know, makes, you know, he used the same process for Jesus. Here are two people who would become king. And the process looked different. And both of them. Like, ran, if you would even think about them like running for office, not that Jesus ran for office, but they ran on the word peace. For the emperor, it was Pax Romana. It was the peace of Rome. Everybody would have known this. It was a peace of Rome. For Jesus, this was, it was the shalom of God. It was the peace of God, which some would argue that you don't see like the literal word on every page of Scripture, but that it is on every page of Scripture, the shalom of God. This isn't just about like your mental state, experiencing having peace. This is about peace that comes to the entire world. It's, a, a society, it's for all of society. Now, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, this is a peace that would come through bloodshed, through battle. Like, Rome was all for peace as long as you did what Rome wanted you to do. Jesus' peace came differently. In Colossians chapter 1, here's what it says about the peace Jesus brings. In verse 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is how Jesus brought peace into your life. And this is how Jesus brings peace into the world. It is through death and through sacrifice. 
So there's the shalom of God, the peace of God. And the shalom of God does a couple of things for us. It should cause us to make statements like the way things ought to be is the shalom of God. Like this is what we want for the world. And it causes us to say things like it doesn't have to be the way it is. Like you see fragmentation in the world and we know it doesn't align with the shalom of God. And if you ever have a chance to go to Israel or if you have many Jewish friends, when you see them, they greet each other with shalom, peace. And this shalom that they speak in a moment of hello, this isn't just like they're in a peace of mind and they want you to be in a peace of mind. It's that we believe and we want this peace to be for the entire world. It's a social statement, not just an individual statement. There are Christian traditions today all around the world that when they take the elements of communion, like we will do here in just a few minutes, when they take the bread and they take the cup, what they will speak to each other is peace of Christ, like the shalom of Christ. May what goes into you right now remind you of the peace Jesus died for. And you see a few of these places pop up in Scripture, like in Romans chapter 14, verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace. It's a mutual edification. Or Colossians 3, 14 and 15. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. And here's what Jesus said in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So we're in a series right now called Choreology. I'm just talking through a few principles of their principles that help us because we live in a time right now where there are culture wars and cancel culture all around us. There is nothing our culture won't cancel. And we've talked about this the last few weeks. Culture wars are all around us and sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of them. Andy Stanley wrote a book called Not In It To Win It where he talks about what Americans love more than anything is winning and what Americans hate more than anything is losing. And what Andy Stanley does is he writes and one thing he urges is when it comes to Christians getting involved in culture wars, a lot of times there are not winners and losers, there are casualties. There are people who see the way Christians can behave sometimes in the midst of culture wars, and there are people who choose to walk away from the church or walk away from it. So I've been, uh, this is the fourth week of this series. And I've been very grateful for some of the responses. And it's always good when you speak in the culture and you have Republicans and Democrats and independents. And then those of you who, like, you don't align with any of it at all, who have reached out in some way and have said thank you for, for, for just the sermon series. It's hard for people, especially when it comes to culture and politics, to agree on anything. So the fact there's some encouragement means it is hitting. And not that I need the affirmation, but it's nice to know that we are a church on a mission where... We're, we're committed to the gospel no matter what. That's good. Because there are people in this church who identify as Republicans, and there is no argument you could make to them today that would make them change their mind. And there are people in this church who identify as Democrats, and there is no argument you could make that would make them change their mind. And there are those of you who don't identify as anything politically, and there's no argument people can make to you today that would make you change your mind. Now, the series I'm doing right now, I'm, I'm turning this into a book, and it's going to be released in a few months. And, and uh, you know, there are two different ways you could buy this book and share it with a friend. One is you could hand it to them and say, I think this will be an encouragement in your life. 
And the other way is to hand it to them and say, you are in desperate need of this book. Because the way you engage culture and you think about politics, like you have lost your soul or like you have lost your witness, right? And this is not the book I want you to buy and give to all your family members and then at Thanksgiving when you take a bite of turkey and dressing that you'd bring up like, hey, chapter four, Josh talked about resisting social media and cable news and how are all of you doing at it, dad? You know, this that's not, that's not how you need to go about it. But I think we get that our witness in the world is on the line every single day of how we model and live out the good news of Jesus. And I think we get that the goal of the church isn't to save America, and the goal of the church isn't to protect America, though we, I think we, we also get, like, we want America to be healthy and to, great, and to be great and to thrive, but that the mission of the church is to seek and save the lost. So here's a statement as we talk about peace day. Here's, here's one statement. If you'll throw up just the, the first part of this uh, quote, here's a statement. I believe that I'm acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty God. And, and isn't that great? Like you would love for that to be true in your own life. As you live your life, as you stand on certain principles, right, as you engage, like, like to be able to say, I believe I'm acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty God. Now stay there right, real quick, stay right there. Because do, does anybody know who, this, who makes this statement? Anybody? Show of hands, anybody? And some of you are like, well, Jesus, of course it's Jesus. Right? It, it, it's not Jesus. It's, and now you're like, I, George Washington, Madonna, like who did it? Like we're just going to start throwing out names. And, and here's the full quote. Here's the full quote. And it goes like this. That thus I believe I'm acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. By defending myself against the Jew, I am fighting for the work of the Lord. And it's Adolf Hitler. Now for hundreds, thousands of years, there have been people who have stood for things like peace. But the peace they stand for, or the peace they think they're fighting for, doesn't align with who God is. And I know I chose an extreme to make the point. But Ed Stetzer says this, you can't hate people and engage them with the gospel at the same time. You can't war with people and show the love of Jesus. And I love this one. You can't be both outraged and on mission. You can't do both. And when it comes to God, like sometimes you know that you or others have created God in your own image when God hates all the same people you do. That's when you're like, okay, we've created God in our own image. So let's talk about making and building just for a moment. When I think about making and building, and that's the image I want in your head, like what are all the things that come, that, that come into play when you think about making or building something? In our home, there have been a lot of Legos that have been built over the years. Noah, my youngest, he's the best at it. Noah loves building things with Legos. He's all, always has. Casey's the second best. There have been Mother's Days that her, what she asked for were, she wanted Lego sets. She, Casey loves it. Casey and Noah have loved doing things with Legos. I'm not that great at it because I don't like following instructions, all right? I just don't, that's not how I like doing some things in life. But if you choose to do Legos, and, you know, I don't know if any of you have Lego rooms in your house, so there's a good chance it's going to happen on the kitchen table. And when you put together Lego sets, you follow instructions, there's a plan, there's a purpose, it's gonna take time. Now what I do like in my life is occasionally working a puzzle. And sometimes I need things in my life that slow me down. And when I go after a puzzle, I go after it. I'm gonna be there for about a day or two, that's all I need. I need less than two days and I will sit down and I will knock that puzzle out at 12.30 in the morning, I will tell myself one more piece. 
And after I get that piece, it is so gratifying that I will say, just one more piece. And, I, and I'll do that over and over again. It's kind of like when you eat apple pie. You know, you take a bite and then you're like, just one more bite. And some of you are like, what are you talking about? Who ever takes one bite of apple pie, right? And then sometimes I've had some of you, I've had some of you, and I don't want to give your names because then people are going to ask you to build things, but you make pens in your shops and you make things with wood. And then when it comes to making things or building things, there are stores like Lowe's and Home Depot that help us out. So when it comes to making and building things, you need a plan, you need a, you need a budget, you need time, you need purpose. So with all that in mind, I want you to listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus says, blessed are the peace." makers, for they will be called children of God. And Jesus said this in the presence of some people who were zealots. They were, all, they were like totally against the empire, willing to fight against the empire. And Jesus is speaking words about peacemaking and the presence of people who had no clue what it meant. It's the only beatitude in Matthew chapter 5 that comes with a statement of being called something in return. So what Jesus says is, blessed are those of you who live this kind of way, and in response, you will be called children of God. It's like you will be called this by God, but also the way you live your life, when people see you live a life of being a peacemaker, they will honor you. Like they will see the reputation coming from you as, oh my goodness, like there's something different in these people. Like they are children of God. And when it comes to the Beatitudes, Jesus is not making suggestions. Right? He's making statements like, this is what you need to live into. Blessed are the peacemakers. And this word peacemaker, and you'll see this pop up on the screen, this word peacemaker is to seek and reconcile persons who have disagreements, which means peacemaking is not just starting from scratch. Peacemaking is taking fragmentation and brokenness and somehow trusting that God can bring peace in the midst of it. That's wild and crazy, right? James chapter 3, verse 18 says this, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So how can we cultivate peace in the world when we see so much fragmentation around us? And I think the answer is, is that we have the responsibility from God to offer up an alternative vision to the world of what peace is all about. And if God has established peace by reconciling us to him through the cross, then we must do all we can to embody this reality in everything we do. Politics and culture wars, it's all around us and it's not going away. And not all politics and culture wars are against the common good, but it feels like a lot of times it's not for the common good of everyone, but it's to compete and win. And when this happens, here's what Philip Kinnison says, we find ourselves offering up not an alternative vision of how God would have us live together that is rooted in God's peace or wholeness, but merely a legislative agenda we would like to see advanced that would make us feel more at home in society. So sometimes what you see in the world, like when there are battles, is you see ceasefires. And ceasefires just saying, hey, temporarily we're not going to like throw bombs and shoot each other. It's just a ceasefire. So a ceasefire is not permanent peace. It's temporary. And it feels like the church, not the Sycamore View Church, but the church too often settles for ceasefire. 
of instead of working to build the kind of peace God wants in the world, let's just be okay with not, like, not shooting each other or yelling things at each other. But Jesus didn't die for ceasefires. Jesus died to raise up a community of, of peacemakers in the world. People who are going to see fragmentation as something that God can put back together and use for his glory. One person made this statement. They said, we can't preach a united gospel as a divided church. And we're products of our environment. Like our environment, where we live, like living in the South. Like, I mean, there are certain things about values that just come with living in the South and the North or United States or outside the United States. We get this. Like we are formed and shaped by the environments around us. Here's an example. Around a decade ago, I went up to Barrow, Alaska, the northernmost city, northernmost town in the United States. It was a sermon project, a book project I was working on at the time. I, I lived in this community for 11 days. I was there in the community for 11 days. It's around negative 50 degrees most days I was there. And I was talking to these people about how they navigate seasons of darkness. I went and I just knew one person over 11 days. All these doors kept opening up for me to visit churches. So I ended up speaking at three different churches, a library book club. I was on a radio show. I spoke in the local high school. Like they're like, hey, we have this person from the lower 48 and they you know, preach sermons and write books. Who wants them? So I was, just, I was speaking all over the place. In that community, almost everywhere I went, there was an issue that came up. And these people were some of the most, they were some of the most passionate people against abortion that I've ever been around. It came up everywhere. I heard it in every church I went into in the sermon, there was anti-abortion statements made. I was in a men's ministry recovery group with alcoholics, drug dealers, and people who were battling porn, and anti-abortion became the main topic in there. I, I preached at a church where afterwards somebody came up and they said, I have a video I'd like for you to watch. And they start playing the video with a line of people waiting to talk to me. And have you ever had people do this where they're like, oh, you got to see this video. And they hit play and it's like, it's 11 minutes long. And, you know, and they'd expect you just to stand there and to watch this video. But that, that was it. These people had an issue. They were very passionate about it. The same people were passionate about another issue. And almost everywhere I went, they talked about the environment. Almost the same group of people talked about the environment. And what they would say is, if you people down in the lower 48 don't believe in global warming and that the world is being impacted by the warm weather, tell them to come up here and live with us for a few days. And we would like for them to see that every single day we feel the effects of the environment and what is happening. And I don't share that story to say that we can hold two issues together. That's not what I do it in their environment their culture that they were in, the environment of it, it formed and shaped how they thought about a lot of things. I want you to think about that. We have a chance where we live and how we live out the Christ life in our community and how you engage people in your home and in your neighborhoods. You get to create culture. You get to create the environment. And when people encounter us and experience us, may they definitely know that Jesus has made a difference in our lives. I don't want people to look at Christians and to know for sure how they vote and they think they're a Christian, but to see the way we live our lives and it is a witness because our center, our core, we're in this together with Jesus. I want that, this last image from Colossians that I read earlier, I want this just to stay up on the screen for a few moments. 
And for those of you who may be first-time guests, when we take communion uh, here in this church, there's six tables, and you're gonna. Some people already have communion, and and some of the things I love in this moment. Some of you already have the bread and the cup, and in the next few minutes, you're gonna have a moment with God where you're gonna remember what Jesus has done for you, and you're gonna reflect. And then I get to go over here where I meet just to pray with people, and I'm gonna see at least one life group that I know will get together in just a moment to share the bread and the cup. And I'll see guests who make their way to tables. And I'll see the whole section of youth group kids. And I can see them over to my right making their way to a table. And this moment, the peace that you need is what was in the bread and the cup. Jesus died for your peace of mind, for peace in your heart, peace in your family, and peace in the world. And what we take in here in the next few moments, may it give us the peace that comes and knowing who God is and may it be something we work for. One of the hardest things in writing this sermon was this. I tried so hard to come up with three to five things to give people to help you be a peacemaker in your life. Every single one of them I developed, it just flopped. It was like God was like, don't do it. And it was like this was a moment when God was like, hey, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to tell people what what to do. I just want you to place a truth in front of people and then let them work it out with me of what that needs to look like in their their life. Therefore, it let me off the hook and it put you on the hook. So this is the word of God for you. Take it, receive it, eat it. Let God bear the fruit this week. Bow your heads and close your eyes. For God, for the peace that came through his sacrifice, may peace come to our community and our neighborhood this week through his sacrifice. Jesus, feed us in this moment and give us a vision of the shalom of God that is still coming into this world. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Feel free to make your way to a table. We'll have an elder up front in the back and two ladies to the left and the right to receive you for prayer in this moment.